Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here this morning. Let's pray and we'll, uh, we'll dig into God's word. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here today on this Memorial Day weekend. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are traveling and visiting others this, uh, uh, this holiday. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless our time uh, as we gather around your word today uh, to strengthen our faith and that you would help us to grow in our love for you and our knowledge of your will for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, um, every session I start out with a question um, from last week. So if you weren't here last week, you're off the hook. Uh, but uh, was there anything that was valuable, anything that stuck with you, anything that came up through the week from last week that uh, you know, might be helpful to share? Yeah. One thing that stuck with me, I don't remember the exact way you worded it, but so the God's plan was for the Jewish people to be an example for the other nations, to bring the other nations to Jesus. Yeah. Then in our Bible studies, when the Jews crossed the Jordan, they put the king's heads on poles and they slaughtered man, woman, and child. I'm having a hard time putting yeah. those two thoughts together. Yeah, um, no, this is one of those things that is really the part of, of uh, the Bible readings that we're in with uh, the conquest of the promised land and Joshua. Um, it's really uncomfortable and it's really, um, you know, one of those things where you look at that and say, that doesn't add up in my mind. Um, and, uh, so there's a couple of thoughts. Um, one, and, and I'm going to give a couple of thoughts. I don't expect any of this to be like, oh yeah, that makes sense now. Okay, just up, put that right up front. Um, because I'm not sure that we can completely understand this. Um, when we look at, at what happened with the, uh, the Israelites going into the promised land, uh, the Israelites were chosen to be uh, a people who were to enact judgment on the Canaanites. Now there's a parallel to this in the Israelites' history too. When they were a kingdom and they started to go away from God's will for them, God sent the Assyrians. And the Assyrians came and killed them, took them into captivity. And then later the Babylonians with the, the southern part of Israel. Um, and uh, you know, in this fallen and broken world, you know, sometimes judgment falls on us with violence, and uh, and not just on the uh, the guilty, uh, it's on everyone. You know, when it when it happens to a nation like that, um, I also think that we underestimate the wickedness of the Canaanites. Um, I, you know, I remember reading these stories when I was a kid, and I just kind of thought of them like you know, th these are the people that in my community, you know, and that maybe don't believe in Jesus and. Not really. I mean, it, when you look at the religion of the Canaanites, uh, highly sexual, uh, very much related to, uh, to prostitution, um, and, uh, and where there's prostitution, this is very rarely voluntary. You know, these were people who were taken in, in order to satisfy um, the, the rituals of their gods. You know, it was kind of this fertility cult thing. Um, 
they sacrifice their children. You know, that, I mean, is kind of the, the, the tip of it. And, and so when we look at how depraved these people were, you know, um, I, I think that uh, uh, some of what we're seeing there is God saying, uh, now I'm enacting judgment on them for, for the things that they have done. And it's kind of built up to this point. And he also does not want his, uh, his people to follow these ways. And so by getting rid of all of the people, there's no one to teach these ways. Um, do I like any of that? No. Because you know, I'm looking at a culture now that we live in that is very much moving away from God's design for a, you know, for a, a country or for a, a nation. Um, we have lost much of what is justice. You know, you know, and, and I think legitimate, legitimate arguments can be made that injustice is woven into you know, the American system. Not because it's American, but because it's people. You know, I think you can look at any nation and see differing kinds of injustices that are woven into the fabric of the nation. And uh, as I look at, at um, our current time that we live in, uh, part of me is like, are we any better than these people were? And the answer is no. Yeah, you know, and so, so I, I mean, part of my prayer is come Lord Jesus, you know, and, and come and set things right. But in the meantime, the way of this world is, it's violence and oppression and, you know, yeah, it's kind of yucky, I'm sorry. I told you I wouldn't have a really good, happy, satisfying answer. <laughs> yeah. What else? Anything? This lady should remember you expounding on Helper. Say that again? This lady should remember you expounding on Helper. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> That's a good word. Oh, yeah, the Savior. Yeah. That word is the, yeah, that word Ezer. Yeah. Yeah. Through the, that, that's right. Thanks, Nancy, for reminding me of that. Of course. <laughs> yeah, as you read through the, the Old Testament, that's only used of God. Or the gods, you know, to say that, you know, you have all these gods and they cannot help you. And Eve. Yeah, that's, uh, that's significant, I think. All right, anything else? All right, then we are going to, uh, to sally forth into uh, the rest of Romans here. Um, and we are at a turning point in the book. So if you were to look at the book of Romans, there are different ways that you can split it up, um, and it's all arbitrary. So just put that up front. You know, these are things that we do to the book in order to organize it in our minds. We could argue that Paul organized it this way, you know, because he's trying to make a logical statement, and, you know, so that I'm okay with that. Uh, but when we say this is how the outline goes, we've placed that on the book. So... Um, Others will disagree with me, I'm, and I'm kind of going um, high level here. Romans chapters 1 through 8 are about justification, righteousness, 
uh, as a gift that God gives to us. We spent a lot of time talking about that word righteousness and, and how God uh, works you know, through his word, through his sacraments, in the lives of his people to declare us, to make us righteous, and it's not our own actions, it's not our own deeds. You know, so by the time you're to Romans chapter 8, um, you know, the end of 7 ends with, um, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. You know, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he spends some time really kind of focusing on, look at all the things that God has done for us. And then we get to chapter 9 um, through 11, and that's the section that we just finished talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this is get, getting kind of at what Ron was bringing up, that the, the Jews were supposed to be a light to the nations, and they weren't. And so God brought the nations in a different way, and part of that goal was to make the Jews jealous in order to draw them back to God. But at the end of that chapter, or the end of that section, we get God has placed them all under sin in order that he can rescue all of them by his mercy. You know, as I read the Bible, that's really been the whole agenda the whole time that God's going to rescue us by his grace and by his mercy. Um, but uh, um, he, he really drives that point home as he talks about Israel, uh, the Jewish people versus the Gentile people and, and go, kind of going back and forth on that. And then the very end of 11 is that doxology. You know, that, that three-part, uh, three-way praise. Um, we talked about how, you know, you've got the depth of the riches, the wisdom and knowledge of God. You've got riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Uh, you've got the, uh, the three rhetorical questions in 20, 34 and 35. Who has known, who has been his counselor, uh, who has loaned to God, given to him in advance that he should be repaid. And then in 36, or for... Uh, from, through, and to him are all things. You know, so you have this three-part, three-part praise. Chapter 12, then, uh, it moves into a different part of the letter. And a lot of Paul's letters do this, where they expound upon God's grace and his mercy, and then they move into, now you live this way. How do you live in light of uh, what is going on, what God has done for you. So we want to be really clear that you know, the theme of this book is really uh, about the gospel and about God's love and forgiveness, but that is going to impact your life. What does that look like? How, do, how does your life change? And he's going to start talking about that and describing it. So uh, I like the way that the commentary that I'm using uh, des uh, describes this chapter. It says that what we're doing is we're moving from the life that God gives to the life the believer lives. Nice little rhyme there. So God has given you life. How do you live it? And so, again, that theme verse from Romans 1, 16 through 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. You know, so we're like, yeah, that's that righteousness bit that we've really been focusing on the whole time through. And then verse 17 continues. It says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
that means that we're not just sitting around on our hands, we're living. You know, and that living is connected to what Jesus has done for us, what God has done for us in Christ by the power of his spirit. So, um, there was a book uh, put together by Chuck Colson back in the day, um, probably sometime in the 90s, uh, called How Now Shall We Live? And I think he got that quote from someplace else, but I've never been able to track it down. But that idea that I've received the gospel, how should I live now? And that's what's happening in the book. How should we live now that we uh, are righteous? And this is reflected in just kind of the tone of the book even. When you look at uh, Romans 1 through 11, there are 13 imperative verbs in that whole section. 13 commands. When you get to 12 through 16, there are also, also 49 imperative verbs, 45 commands that God gives to us in terms of how we live our lives. And they break out like I have below there. In chapter 12, we're going to hit 11 of them. Uh, in chapter 13, there will be seven more. In chapter 14, there will be nine more. Chapter 15, five more. Chapter 16, there's 17 imperative verbs. But 16 of them are greet somebody. You know, so, you know, you could probably take, you know, 16 out of that 49. It's still pretty, uh, a lot of commands that are going on in that section. Um, and so we might consider this part of the letter to be more uh, practical. You know, we like practical. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. Uh, this is one of the things that I've heard over and over again. You know, pastor, I know I'm forgiven. What do I do now? How am I supposed to live? We, we like to be back under the law. Um, but uh, um, we, we actually do. There's comforting in that. There is. You know, when we, when we have, have definite lines to follow and, and stuff that are, you know, that are not necessarily really difficult. Right. So it's, it's kind of comforting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And is the law good? Yes. Yes, it is. It is a good gift that God gives to us, and uh, and for us to receive it and live in it is a is a good thing. Yeah. Um, the trick is that we often try to use it then to justify ourselves, and that's why Paul spends eight chapters going, no, 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 it's all a gift. No, no, you think you no, uh, it's all about what Jesus has done for you. So, yeah. Um, so the the key assumptions that are made in here about the readers of this letter. First, they are Christians. Paul is not writing this letter to the world. He's writing it to people like you. Um, he's not accusing them of sin in this section. You know, he did that already, right? Chapters one, two, and three, he nails everybody to the wall. And then he goes on to really deal with grace and forgiveness from there. He's saying, no, you're a forgiven child of God. Now you're going to live differently. This is, this is instruction. And maybe you remember from back in uh, confirmation class, uh, this uh, three uses of the law is how we have historically said it. I tend to like to say it three functions of the law. I, God uses his law. We don't. And I think when we say three uses of the law, sometimes people get confused. But this is three things that the law does. You know, it doesn't matter, it's just constantly doing this. 
um, the first function of the law is it acts as a curb. You know, so there's something about the law that says stop. Don't go any further than this. You know, uh, I would be willing to bet that at some point or another, everybody here has probably hit a curb with their car. Yeah. You know, and it's like, Nope! <laughs> Except for Cindy, because she's perfect. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's, the law does that. It, 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 stop. You know, don't go any further. Why? You know, for a parking lot, the curbs are there for order and everything, but sometimes they're there to protect you. And, and that's what the law does. You know, so it's this boundary that says, this is your neighbor, this is you, this is sin and death, this is life. You know, it, it acts as that boundary. It says, don't go any further than this. And as humans, we tend to be like, how close can I get without going over? Um, God's like, you just stay back. Um, the, the second is as a mirror. Um, and this is the, the function that we tend to focus on in church, you know, when we confess our sins. Um, maybe you have seen the acronym that is sometimes used uh, for the law, SOS. It shows our sins. You know, and this is, we look at what God's Word says. Anytime we look at God's Word and we see ourselves coming up short, that is uh, this function of the law. It shows our sins. And it does that for a good purpose in order that we can know that we need a, a Savior. That we know that we need forgiveness for those sins. Although the law itself does not give that forgiveness. So the law always does that. It doesn't matter who's hearing it. It always acts as a curb. It always acts as a mirror. And this is what, for the most part, the world objects to when they hear God's word. They say, I, there is no boundary. I get to do whatever I want. And, you know, don't accuse me. I remember having a conversation one time um, and uh, my kids were there and one of them dropped a piece of food and one of the kids says something to the effect of, oh, a sin, he's being a smart mouth. Um, and, uh, and the guy I'm talking with goes, there's no such thing as sin here. I'm like, interesting. You know, there are no boundaries. There is nothing right. There is nothing wrong. I, I know the guy pretty well. And I could tell you that there's a whole list of things that he would say, you know, are sin. He just wouldn't use that kind of language. But uh, the law is always doing that. Where it's always accusing us, saying that you haven't done enough or you've done the wrong things. Now, that's the two functions, first two functions of the law. The third function is as a guide. Now, the guide will continue to accuse us. So, you know, it's still the law. However, now that you have been redeemed in Christ, the law functions differently in your life. It still says, don't go any further. It still says, repent, turn away from your sin, receive Jesus' forgiveness. But now it says, and this is how you should live. And you receive that differently than, you know, don't. It becomes wisdom. It becomes, well, guidance for how now shall I live. So people are like, you know, love is love. Just love your neighbor, man. What does that look like? What does it look like when you love your neighbor? 
Is it just, you know, leave them alone, let them do whatever they want? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, maybe you have a neighbor who really enjoys crack cocaine. If you love them, maybe you should buy them some more. No. You know, we recognize that, that sin is deadly, it's poisonous, and it, it kills. You know, and so we care about our neighbors. And, you know, and so when we look at how do we love one another, how do we love God, this is going to tell us what that actually looks like, rather than just some idea that we might have. Pastor? Yeah. I was thinking as we were going through these three, three functions of the law, how Satan twists it just oh, a little bit. Absolutely. Just a little bit. Like the guide, are you really doing God's work? Are you really saved? Yeah. 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 And the curve, don't worry about that curve. Yeah. 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 You don't have to stop there. Go wherever you want. Go wherever you want. You can do whatever you want. You're saved. Yeah, um, this is actually one of the things that I remember learning, um, you know, about Satanism. Uh, people are like Satan, worshiping the devil, you know, and sacrificing babies and all of this kind of thing. And, and there is an element of that in some of it. But on the whole, on the, whole the, the message of Satanism is to thine own self be true. Or in other words, do what you want. Or did God really say that? Right. That, that's that. just, yeah, that's the way that he asked the question. So, um, so the recipients of this letter, we are Christians, and the law is going to work in our lives to guide us. It's going to shape the way that we live in this world. Uh, the second assumption, uh, the, the readers of this letter cannot live for God by their own power and abilities. We need the Holy Spirit at work in us. We, we need the strengthening uh, that comes to us through the word and the sacraments when we gather together as his people to hear the word, to receive grace, to pray, and, and all of those things. This is not something that we can do on our own. Third, um, the day-to-day -day life of uh, the people who receive this letter is what we might call normal. It, it's just living. You know, and so we live practically, we live experientially. We have all of these things that come together to shape us and to form us in how we live in this life. And then what we do with that then is that we seek to conform to the righteousness that's given to us in our baptism. So we go through this world and, and you know, I mentioned taxes earlier, you know, we have to pay our taxes. You know, we roughly follow the speed limit, sort of. And if we don't, and we get caught, we will pay a fine. Um, we have to go to work. We have to buy groceries. We have, you know, there, there's, there's that very practical aspect to our lives. But there's something that changes in that, in light of what Jesus has done for us. How we conduct ourselves in the midst of that. There are aspects of that that are going to change because of this righteousness that's been delivered to us in our baptism and through faith in Jesus. And then the readers of this letter, are they're capable of returning to their former life under sin, which leads to death. It is possible for us to say, um, you know, I know what God's will is, but I'm going to do this instead. 
And because we have that temptation in us all the time, we benefit from encouragement and warnings, which uh, you could call, uh, if this was like an academic thing, there would say positive or negative exhortation. Um, we need to be encouraged to do the right thing, and we need to be warned to not do the wrong thing. And that's really what's going on in this last section of the letter. So, any comments or questions on what we've done here so far? Then let's jump into the text. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercy of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. All right. I had a professor at the seminary who liked to say, when you see therefore in a text, you should always ask, what is it there for? In other words, it's a reference back to something else. So when it says therefore, what is, what's it referring to? Our salvation. Yeah, yeah, it actually states it right in, in the, the, the sentence there. Therefore, in view of the mercies of God, Everything that we've been talking about, how you were chosen, you're grafted in, you know, you were rescued even though you weren't part of this and all of that stuff. You've been given a righteousness that's not your own. This is not by your works, it's a gift of God. All, all of that. In light of all of that, I urge you, he says, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. So because of everything that Jesus has done for you, Live differently is what he's going to teach us. Um, in view of is the uh, Christian Standard Bible translates this in view of the mercies of God. Uh, the word there could be translated in view of the sympathy of God, the view of the, in view of the compassion or the pity of God. It, in other words, it's basically saying because of the fact that you have received grace. Something's going to change. Something's going to be different. And this is what he wants you to do. He says, present your bodies as a sacrifice. And that sacrifice is modified by three words. Uh, it's modified by a participle and two adjectives. A living sacrifice that is holy and then it is acceptable. Um, uh, it could also be translated as it's pleasing to God. So, we're not talking about dying by our sacrifice, not physically. You know, we're not going back to the Canaanite days. We're not going back to the Aztecs. We're not talking about, you know, sacrificing people. There's one person that was sacrificed for us, and that was sufficient. So he died for us. We live for him. I can think of it. How about like the sacrifice of some sleep to do the, the work of God? Say that again? Sacrifice some sleep. Oh, sure. To do the work of God. Sacrifice yeah. a meal to do the work of God. So sure. it is still a bodily sacrifice um, yeah. without 
crazy. Yeah, uh, I think the things like fasting and you know are definitely part of this. They don't gain us anything. They don't earn us anything, but they can be beneficial to helping us walk this walk of faith. Right, keep, uh, keep, help us keep our focus. Yeah, and to help to keep us away from things that will take us away right. from Jesus. Right, if you're focused on this, yeah. it's hard to yeah, and pull away from that. Yeah, and it's not just that I'm focused on this, it's this isn't allowed in my life. Mm -hmm. And because this isn't allowed in my life, I'm not going to get sucked into it. And it frees up that focus time. Yes, it does. It does. You know, and, and those kinds of habits can be very beneficial. Um, I, I, the danger in some of that sometimes is, uh, from what we've observed over the years, is that sometimes people become so fixated on those things that they start to think that doing those things put them in a better relationship with God. Um, that's what the monks did uh, yeah. back in the day, right? You know, and so this thing that is a, a beneficial habit for our lives to help us to live for the Lord then become stumbling block for us um, my brother Mike over here he used this you know the devil twisting uh, idea um, there is no good thing in this world that the devil can't twist you know and so you know we always want to watch all of these behaviors to make sure that when we're living that you know our living is actually to the Lord you know um, and we don't get sucked into some of the other stuff you know the pride and the uh, other. That's a self-reliance type of stuff. Um, but this idea that, you know, because Christ died for us, we live for him. You know, that, that that's woven throughout the scriptures. It's very much an idea that my life is different because of what God has done for me. You know, and that will include things like fasting. It will include things like shunning certain behaviors. Um, and prayer is part of that. Um, when I hear getting up early, it's to read his word. That's the thing that comes to my mind. And to pray. I want to listen to what he says. This is one of the big changes that happens in that relationship with the law. Um, where in the Psalms we read, I love your law, O Lord. In, in all honesty, humanity does not tend to love God's law. Our sinful nature rebels against it. But now that we have his spirit in us and we've been redeemed, all of a sudden it's like, this is good. Thank you for, for giving me this. And I'm going to live according to it. Help me to walk in your paths. Help me to live in your ways. Uh, you know, all of this, this type of stuff. And those paths and those ways um, are, are holy. Anybody have a nutshell definition for holy? Set apart. Set apart. That is from the real, the Hebrew. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for uh, 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 holy is kadosh, which means to cut. So you cut off a chunk and you set it apart. Yeah, set apart. What else? Sanctified, the fancy Latin word, right? So sanctified means made holy. So we're defining a word with the same word to some degree there. But uh, yeah, we have this new righteousness in us. It's a process. 
What's that? It's a process. Well, when we talk of sanctification, we have to talk about it in two ways. Uh, in one way, it's completely done for us because uh, how does one become holy in God's sight? It's through the declaration. So you are sanctified completely and totally. And yet there's this element of our life that is very much a process, right? And so, you know, we have both of those things going on. Okay, God-pleasing. That, that's actually the next thing that, that gets commented on. Acceptable or pleasing to God. <coughs> How about without sin? Do we tend to think of that as a definition for holy? Yeah, yeah so I, I want to take that idea of being set apart and that without sin thing and, and kind of bring them together um, in terms of what this is talking about. <coughs> Present your bodies as a, a living sacrifice that is set apart not for the sake of living in the sinful world, but to live in light of the righteousness of Jesus in this world. To live it as people who try by a process of living and praying and trusting in the Spirit and the change that goes on in us to live uh, a life that reflects God's perfection and sinlessness, which would be then acceptable and pleasing to God. Does that make sense? Now, we're going to strive, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. But are we ever going to completely get there in this life? No, we're not. That's the process thing that Nancy was talking about. We're constantly striving. And so part of what is acceptable and pleasing to God is actually that we live by faith and that we live in repentance and we live in forgiveness. So that's all part of the, the, the picture that is presented here. That, that we're gonna live in such a way that our lives show forth who God is in his his holiness, his righteousness, his sinlessness as we deal with others. And it says that this then is your, your reasonable worship. It's your rational service. In other words, this makes sense. You live differently because of what Jesus has done for you. Now, Let's think about the things that Jesus has called us to do in his law. Love your enemies. Give a tithe. Um, if if uh, uh, somebody strikes you on your right cheek, turn to him your left cheek also. Uh, it, let's see. Uh, if somebody forces you to go one mile on the road, go with them a second mile. Do any of those things sound reasonable or rational in terms of this world? No, they don't. But what Paul is saying is that this change that takes place in us, it makes sense in light of what Jesus has done. He dies to bear our sin, he dies. His, our sin is on him. And now his righteousness is on us. And so now we live 
in a way that makes sense, not in worldly terms, not in terms of this kingdom, but in, in light of the kingdom of God. Um, yeah? A thought that I have is that doing these things is showing forgiveness. Like if somebody hits you in the face okay. and you turn the other way, you've kind of forgiven them. Okay. Because that, you know, you, they do this to you and you come back and do something good for them as a way of forgiving them. Without them asking for it, they're not asking for it, but you just, you're voluntarily give, forgiving them what they've done to you. Does that make sense? It does. And when we give forgiveness that was not asked for, do we reflect our Father in heaven? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You also, also convict them. You heap the coals on their head. Yeah, we're, we're actually going to come up to that uh, at the uh, the end of chapter twelve. I didn't read that. Likely story. <laughs> yeah, when we get to verse twenty of, of of chapter twelve here, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. So we're going to have to wrestle with what exactly that means and uh, what exactly is being said there. But, uh, but this idea of having an attitude to forgive the people who harm us, I do think that that's a peculiarly Christian way of living. Have to do. Have to do. But possible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sue. This statement does make sense. It reminds me of um, another church where we were served in the University. So... Get all And, and in terms of what Islam teaches, or you know, pretty much any religion of the world, that makes no sense. You know, we we live in a world that's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? You know, nature red and tooth and claw and all of that. You know, we love a type of justice in this world um, that isn't actually justice, but is vengeance and retribution. You know, and. Uh, this mercifulness is something that it it's unique to the kingdom. It's not part of the flow of this world. You know, and it's it's important that as Christians we reflect that to our world, that mercy and that forgiveness. And this is I think this is hard. Yeah. So I would say that that's a good kind of worldly um, type of a, a, a way to talk about justice. Um, but the idea of justice is very much rooted in giving people what they deserve. You know, and, uh, you know, so I don't know, to think of kind of one of the worst things that could, could happen, you know, if a... Uh, if you have somebody who is, you know, raping and pillaging uh, a community, and you don't want them to get what they need, you know, because frankly, you want them just to be put down, you know, and they get what they 
deserve. That, that is a very human desire. And I think that sometimes because we live in a world, uh, we live in a part of the world that has so much that we're in some ways uh, more, more relaxed in, in this idea of vengeance being really striking down the wicked. Um, and, uh, um, you know, that is, that's a real part of, of life and it's a real part of the, the Bible that God will strike down the wicked. And we have to connect that to what happened to Jesus on the cross that, you know, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's 2 Corinthians 5. And so in a sense, you know, we look at that and say, God struck down the wicked in that moment when he struck down Jesus as he bore our sin. Um, but then there's another element of this that as wickedness continues to work in this world, that he will push back against that and sometimes, sometimes violently. So. Uh, the, the idea of worship is, uh, um, it's part of who we are as people. Um, I know that you know, atheism is very much in vogue uh, in, in the world, but uh, uh, I find that even atheists worship you know, something, usually themselves. Um, but, uh, or you know, sometimes it's you know, some, kind of a, some kind of a power system outside of themselves, government, science, medicine, uh, any of those things can sometimes be you know, things that are worshiped. Um, but I got this great quote out of um, Eugene Peterson's A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And he talks about how Christians you know, worship. And he says, there are more people in worship on any given Sunday than at all the football games or on the golf links or fishing or, talk, or taking walks in the woods. Worship is the single most popular act in this land. And just this idea that our hearts are drawn to worship. And that for us as Christians, that is an act of, of obedience, but it's also an act of voluntary joy that we get to come to God's house uh, to receive his gifts. And there's something that, that is in us that draws us to this aspect of the life of faith. We know that we are meant to react to what God has done for us. Now, I think we'll find that we define worship differently as Christians in different denominations. Um, but it all comes back to Jesus has done this for me and therefore it makes sense that I live differently in light of what he has done. I'm responding to that, that our worship starts from Christ has died for me. I've received God's mercy. And then that's going to be what propels us in, in, into our acts of worship. And now we get our first imperative verbs, our first commands. All of this has been descriptive so far. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Sometimes um, uh, the, the translation that I use is do not, be, uh, do not be conformed to the pattern of this age. Um, the word can be translated 
either way. Uh, so world or age, it's this idea of uh, the, the systems of this world that you live in. It's the, the, the logic of the kingdom of this world. He says, do not conform yourself to that. And part of what he's talking about is this, this idea of the penultimate and the ultimate. You know, this world is going to disappear. Live in light of what is permanent. We kind of, we get that, you know. We've been promised eternal life. We've been promised a, a home in glory. You know, do not, do not put your hope in, the, in things that rust, that moths eat, you know, all of those kinds of things. Uh, do not put your trust in princes, it says in, in the Psalms. Because, you know what's going to happen at some point to uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump? They're going to die. I mean, these are both guys, you know, 80-ish years old, right? We know what happens. You know, we can, we can see, even as we look at them, their bodies are breaking down. Ours, too. You know, that's the way of this world. Don't put your hope and your confidence in those types of things. And he says, do not conform. The, the word has to do with molding, being shaped by um, the things of this world, the patterns of this world. So there, there's a logic and there's an order to this world, and we're constantly being pressed into uh, ways of thinking and ways of acting. Uh, some of this is faddishness. Some of this is fetish. Uh, you know, all kinds of things that the world is saying, this is good, this is right. And it's trying to push us into that mold. And Paul's saying, no, no. Um, we are called to live in opposition uh, to the world's values. Even as we live for the world's benefit. And I think that's important, you know, to remember Sometimes Christians are really good at saying, you know, I'm in opposition to the world. We're not always really good at, we're here for the world's benefit. And part of that benefit is reflecting the truth of God's love and God's law to the world. That there's a logic to the kingdom that also we want to conform to. I was just thinking of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, I think it is, that says that Satan is the look at of this world. The prince of this world, yeah. The prince of this world. Yeah. So when he's saying don't be conformed, he's yeah. saying watch out for the prince. Yep. He's trying to get you off track. Yeah. Um, I had a t-shirt when I was in college, uh, and it had a bunch of fish going in one direction, and there's a, like a Jesus fish in the middle. <laughs> and it says, go against the flow. That's, that's kind of the idea. We are people of a different kingdom. We should live differently. And by the way, when I say we should live differently, is that statement law or gospel? It's law. You may ever like, when you hear, you should live differently, you go, am I? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Right. <laughs> so that's the first is, you know, do not be conformed. And the second is be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And, and this renewal of your mind thing, it takes us back to Romans 8, and uh, particularly verses 5 and 8, where it talks about the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit and, and all of that, that the mind of the spirit is what's in us now. 
And that's a transformation, that's a change. The word transformation in Greek is metamorphosis. Maybe you run into that word. Um, we usually use that with, like, with butterflies, right? Be a butterfly. Yeah. Uh, you know, let your wings soar. Um, but, uh, you know, let your mind blossom with the, 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 the beauty and the color of the kingdom and, and, and be those people because he changes your values and he changes the way that you think so that you will be able to, uh, to examine or to test, to discern, to approve uh, what the good and pleasing and perfect will of God is or what God approves. Um, now, I... I'm always a little bit nervous when, when I hear this, you know, uh, so that you'll be able to approve what the good and pleasing and perfect will of God is. And I'm, I'm worried about that because sometimes I, I fear that we read this like a judge that says, you know, yeah, God, I'm approving of what you said. And, I'm, you know, so uh, I'm going to decide this. It's not really that. It's that my approval would align with his approval. So I'd see the things that are good and perfect and pleasing to God, the things that he approves of, and I approve of them too, because my mind has been changed. So um, I'm just gonna wrap up with these two questions really quick here. Something for us to think about. Sometimes people in the world will look at us and say, you are not acting very Christian. And I would ask, how does the world know how a Christian should act? Right. And then the second question I would ask is of you Christians, how do you know how a Christian should act? So I'll let you, I'll let you noodle on that over the, the week and hopefully uh, we can get back together next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word. And we pray that, um, that you would help us in light of the mercies of God and the forgiveness and the salvation that you have given us in Christ to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, and to truly worship you with our lives. Help us to not be conformed to the patterns of this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we'll know what is good and pleasing and perfect to you, Father and that we would live in those things and love them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.